0: Chapter eleven of The Breaking Point by Mary Roberts Rinehart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bassett lounged outside the neat privet hedge, which it was Harrison Miller's custom to clip with his own bachelor hands, and waited. And as he waited he tried to imagine what was going on inside, behind the neatly curtained windows of the old brick house. He was tempted to ring the bell again, pretend to have forgotten something, and perhaps happen in on what might be drama of a rather high order. What, supposing the man was Clark after all, was fairly sure to be drama. He discarded the idea, however, and began again his interested survey of the premises. Whoever conceived this sort of haven for Clark, if it were Clark, had shown considerable shrewdness. The town fairly smelt of respectability, the tree shaded streets, the children in socks and small crisp laundered garments, the houses set back, each in its square of shaved lawn, all peaceful, middle-class and unexciting. The last town in the world for Judson Clark, the last profession, the last house, the shabby old brick before him. He smiled rather grimly, as he reflected that if Gregory had been right in his identification, he was, beyond those windows at that moment, very possibly warning Clark against himself. Gregory would know his type, that he never let go. He drew himself up a little. The house door opened and Gregory came out, turning toward the station. Bassett caught up with him and put a hand on his arm. "'Well,' he said cheerfully, "'it was, wasn't it?' Gregory stopped dead and stared at him. Then—' "'Old dog Tray,' he said sneeringly. "'If your brain was as good as your nose, Bassett, you'd be a whale of a newspaper man.' "'Don't bother about my brain. It's working fine today, anyhow. Well, what had he to say for himself?' Gregory's mind was busy, and he had had a moment to pull himself together. "'We both get off together,' he said more amiably. "'That fellow isn't Judd Clark and never was. He's a doctor and the nephew of the old doctor there. They're in practice together.' Did you see them both? Yes. Bassett eyed him. Either Gregory was a good actor, or the whole trail ended there after all. He himself had felt, after his interview with Dick, that the scent was false. And there was this to be said. Gregory had been in the house scarcely ten minutes, long enough to acknowledge a mistake, but hardly long enough for any dramatic identification. He was keenly disappointed, but he had had long experience of disappointment and after a moment he only said, "'Well, that's that. He certainly looked like Clark to me.' "'I'll say he did.' "'Rather surprised him, didn't you?' "'Oh, he was all right,' Gregory said. "'I didn't tell him anything, of course.' Bassett looked at his watch. "'I was after you, all right,' he said cheerfully. "'But if I was barking up the wrong tree, I'm done. I don't have to be hit on the head to make me stop.' Come and have a soda water on me, he finished amiably. There's no train until seven. But Gregory refused. No, thanks. I'll wander on down to the station and get a paper. The reporter smiled. Gregory was holding a grudge against him for a bad night and a bad day. All right, he said affably. I'll see you at the train. I'll walk about a bit. He turned and started back up the street again, walking idly. His chagrin was very real. He hated to be fooled, and fooled he had been. Gregory was not the only one who had lost a night's sleep. Then, unexpectedly, he was hailed from the curbstone, and he saw with amazement that it was Dick Livingston. "'Take you anywhere?' Dick asked. "'How's the headache?' "'Better, thanks,' Bassett stared at him. "'No, I'm just walking around until train time. Are you starting out or going home at this hour?' "'Going home. Well, glad the head's better.' He drove on, leaving the reporter gazing after him. So Gregory had been lying. He hadn't seen this chap at all. Then why?' He walked on, turning this new phase of the situation over in his mind. "'Why this elaborate fiction, if Gregory had merely gone in, waited for ten minutes, and come out again?' "'It wasn't reasonable. It wasn't logical.' Something had happened inside that house to convince Gregory that he was right. He had seen somebody, or something. He hadn't needed to lie. He could have said frankly that he had seen no one. But no, he had built up a fabric carefully calculated to throw Bassett off the scent. He saw Dick stop in front of the house, get out and enter, and coming to a decision he followed him and rang the doorbell. For a long time no one answered. THEN THE MAID OF THE AFTERNOON OPENED THE DOOR, HER EYES RED WITH CRYING, AND LOOKED AT HIM WITH HOSTILITY. DR. RICHARD LIVINGSTON? YOU CAN'T SEE HIM. IT'S IMPORTANT. WELL, YOU CAN'T SEE HIM. DR. DAVID HAS JUST HAD A STROKE. HE'S IN THE OFFICE NOW, ON THE FLOOR. SHE CLOSED THE DOOR ON HIM, AND HE TURNED AND WENT AWAY. IT WAS ALL CLEAR TO HIM. GREGORY HAD SEEN, NOT CLARK, BUT THE OLDER MAN, HAD TOLD HIM AND GONE AWAY and under the shock the older man had collapsed. That was sad, it was very sad, but it was also extremely convincing. He sat up late that night again, running over the entries in his notebook. The old story, as he pieced it out, ran like this. It had been twelve years ago when, according to the old files, Clark had financed Beverly Carlyle's first starring venture. He had apparently started out in the beginning only to give her the publicity she needed. In devising it, however, he had shown a sort of boyish recklessness and ingenuity that had caught the interest of the press, and set newspaper men to chuckling wherever they got together. He had got together a dozen or so of young men like himself, wealthy, idle, and reckless with youth, and headed by him they had made the exploitation of the young star an occupation. The newspapers referred to the star and her constellation as Beverly Carlyle and her Broadway beauties. It had been unvicious, young, and highly entertaining, and it had cost Judson Clark his membership in his father's conservative old clubs. For a time it livened the theatrical world with escapades that were harmless enough, if sensational then after a time newspaper row began to whisper that young clark was in love with the girl the broadway beauties broke up after a wild farewell dinner the audiences ceased to expect a row of a dozen youths all dressed alike with gardenias in their buttonholes and perhaps red neckties with their evening suits to rise in their boxes on the star's appearance and solemnly bow and the star herself lost a little of the anxious look she frequently wore. The story went, after a while, that Judson Clark had been refused and was taking his refusal badly. Reporters saw him carelessly dressed, outside the stage door waiting, and the story went that the girl had thrown him over, money and all, for her leading man. One thing was clear. Clark, not a drinker before, had taken to drinking hard, and after a time and some unpleasant scenes probably, she refused to see him any more. When the play closed in June, 1911, she married Howard Lucas, her leading man, his third wife. Lucas had been not a bad chap, a good-looking, rather negligible man, given to all-day Sunday poker, carefully valeted, not very keen mentally, but amiable. They had bought a house on East 56th Street and were looking for a new play with lucas as co-star when he unaccountably went to pieces nervously stopped sleeping and developed a slight twitching of his handsome rather vacuous face judson clark had taken his yacht and gone to europe and was reported from here and there not too favourably but when he came back in early september he had apparently recovered from his infatuation was his old, carefully-dressed self again, and when interviewed declared his intention of spending the winter on his Wyoming ranch. Of course he must have heard of Lucas's breakdown, and equally, of course, he must have seen them both. What happened at that interview, by what casual attitude he allayed Lucas's probable jealousy and the girl's own nervousness, Bassett had no way of discovering. It was clear that he convinced them both of his good faith for the next note in the reporter's book was simply a date, September twelfth, 1911. That was the day they had all started west together, travelling in Clark's private car, with Lucas twitching slightly, smiling, and waving farewell from a window. The big smash did not come until the middle of October. Bassett sat back and considered. He had a fairly clear idea of the conditions at the ranch daily riding, some little reading, and a great deal too much of each other. A sick man, too, unhappy in his exile, chafing against his restrictions, lonely and irritable. The girl, early seeing her mistake, and Clark's jealousy of her husband. The door into their apartment closing, the thousand and one unconscious intimacies between man and wife, the breakfast for two going up the stairs, and below, that hot-eyed boy, agonized and passionately jealous, yet meeting them and looking after them, their host and a gentleman. Lucas took to drinking after a time to allay his sheer boredom, and Judd Clark drank with him. At the end of three weeks they were both drinking heavily and were politely quarrelsome. Bassett could fill that in also. He could see the girl protesting, watching, increasingly anxious, as she saw that Clark's jealousy was matched by her husband's. A queer picture, he reflected, the three of them shut away on the great ranch, and every day some new tension, some new strain. Then one night at dinner they quarrelled, and Beverly left the table. She was going to pack her things and go back to New York. She had felt, probably, that something was bound to snap and while she was upstairs, Clark had shot and killed Howard Lucas, and himself disappeared. He had run, testament at the inquest revealed, to the corral and saddled a horse. Although it was only October, it was snowing hard, but in spite of that he had turned his horse toward the mountains. By midnight a posse from Norada had started out, and another up the dry river canyon but the storm turned into a blizzard in the mountains, and they were obliged to turn back. A few inches more snow, and they could not have got their horses out. A week or so later, with a crust of ice over it, a few of them began again, with no expectation, however, of finding Clark alive. They came across his horse on the second day, but they did not find him, and there were some among them who felt that, after all, old Elihu Clark's boy had chosen the better way. Bassett closed his notebook and lighted a cigar. There was a big story to be had for the seeking, a whale of a story. He could go to the office, give them a hint, draw expense money, and start for Norada the next night. He knew well enough that he would have to begin there, and that it would not be easy. Witnesses of the affair at the ranch would be missing now or when found, the first accuracy of their statements, would either be dulled by time, or have been added to with the passing years. The ranch itself might have passed into other hands. To reconstruct the events of ten years ago might be impossible, or nearly so. But that was not his problem. He would have to connect Norada with Haverley, Clark with Livingston. One thing only was simple. If he found Livingston's story was correct, that he had lived on a ranch near Norada before the crime and as livingstone then he would acknowledge that two men could look precisely alike and come from the same place and yet not be the same if not but after he had turned out his light and got into bed he began to feel a certain distaste for his self-appointed task if livingstone were clark if after years of effort he had pulled himself up by his own bootstraps had made himself a man out of the reckless boy he had been, a decent and useful citizen, why pull him down? After all, the world hadn't lost much in Lucas, a sleek, not over-intelligent big animal. That had been Howard Lucas. He decided to sleep over it, and by morning he found himself not only disinclined to the business, but firmly resolved to let it drop. Things were well enough as they were— the woman in the case was making good jud was making good and nothing would restore howard lucas to that small theatrical world of his which had waved him good-bye at the station so long ago he shaved and dressed his resolution still holding he had indeed almost a conscious glow of virtue for he was making one of those inglorious and unsung sacrifices which ought to bring a man credit in the next world, because they certainly got him nowhere in this. He was quite affable to the colored waiter who served his breakfasts in the bachelor apartment house, and increased his weekly tip to a dollar and a half. Then he sat down and opened the Times Republican, skimming over it after his habit for his own space and frowning over a row of exclamation and interrogation points unwittingly set behind the name of the mayor. On the second page, however, he stopped, coffee-cup in air. Is Judson Clark alive? Wife of former ranch-manager makes confession. A woman named Margaret Donaldson, it appeared, fatally injured by an automobile near the town of Nerada, Wyoming, had made a confession on her deathbed. In it she stated that, afraid to die without shriving her soul, she had sent for the sheriff of Dallas County and had made the following confession. That following the tragedy at the Clark ranch, her husband, John Donaldson, since dead, had immediately, following the inquest where he testified, started out into the mountains in the hope of finding Clark alive, as he knew of a deserted ranger's cabin where Clark sometimes camped when hunting. It was his intention to search for Clark at this cabin and effect his escape. He carried with him food and brandy. That, owing to the blizzard, he was very nearly frozen. That he was obliged to abandon his horse, shooting it before he did so. And that, close to death himself, he finally reached the cabin and there found Judson Clark, the fugitive, who was very ill. She further testified that her husband cared for Clark for four days. "'Clark being delirious at the time, and that on the fifth day he started back on foot for the Clark ranch, having left Clark locked in the cabin, and that on the following night he took three horses, two saddled, and one packed with food and supplies, that accompanied by herself they went back to the cabin in the mountains, and that she remained there to care for Clark, while her husband returned to the ranch to prevent suspicion.' That a day or so later, looking out of her window, she had perceived a man outside in the snow, coming toward the cabin, and that she had thought it one of the searching party. That her first instinct had been to lock him outside, but that she had finally admitted him, and that thereafter he had remained and had helped her to care for the sick man. Unfortunately for the rest of the narrative, it appeared that the injured woman had here lapsed into a coma, and had subsequently died— carrying her further knowledge with her. But, the article went on, the story opened a field of infinite surmise. In all probability Judson Clark was still alive, living under some assumed identity, free of punishment, outwardly respectable. Three years before he had been adjudged legally dead, and the estate divided, under bond of the legatees. Close to a hundred million dollars had gone to charities, and Judson Clark, wherever he was, would be dependent on his own efforts for existence. He could have summoned all the legal talent in the country to his defence, but instead he had chosen to disappear. The whole situation turned on the deposition of Mrs. Donaldson, now dead. The local authorities at Narada maintained that the woman had not been sane for several years On the other hand, the cabin to which he referred was well known, and no search of it had been made at the time. Clark's horse had been found not ten miles from the town, and the cabin was buried in snow twenty miles further away. If Clark had made that journey on foot, he had accomplished the impossible. Certain facts, according to the local correspondent, bore out Margaret Donaldson's confession. Inquiry showed that she was supposed to have spent the winter following Judson Clark's crime with relatives in Omaha. She had returned to the ranch the following spring. A detailed description of Judson Clark and a photograph of him accompanied the story. Bassett reread the article carefully, and swore a little under his breath. If he had needed confirmation of his suspicions, it lay to his hand. But the situation had changed overnight. There would be a search for Clark now, as wide as the knowledge of his disappearance. Local police authorities would turn him up in every city from Maine to the Pacific coast. Even Europe would be on the lookout, and South America. But it was not the police he feared so much as the press. Not all of the papers, but some of them, would go after that story and send their best men on it. It offered not so much a chance of solution as an opportunity to revive the old dramatic story. He could see, when he closed his eyes, the local photographers climbing to that cabin, and later sending its pictures broadcast, and divers gentlemen of the press, eager to pit their wits against ten years of time, and the ability of a once conspicuous man to hide from the law, packing their suitcases for Norada no he couldn't stop now he would go on like the others and with this advantage that he was morally certain he could lay his hands on clark at any time but he would have to prove his case connected who for instance was the other man in the cabin he must have known who the boy was who lay in that rough bunk delirious must have suspected anyhow that made him like the donaldsons accessory after the fact and criminally liable Small chance of him coming out with any confession. Yet he was the connecting link. Must be. On his third reading the reporter began to visualize the human elements of the fight to save the boy. He saw moving before him the whole pitiful struggle, the indomitable ranch manager, his heart-breaking struggle with the blizzard, the shooting of his horse, the careful disarming of suspicion, and later the intrepid woman Daring that night ride through snow that had sent the posse back to its firesides, to the boy, locked in the cabin and raving. His mind was busy as he packed his suitcase. Already he had forgotten his compunctions of the early morning. He moved about methodically, calculating roughly what expense money he would need and the line of attack, if any, required at the office. Between Narada and that old brick house at Haverley lay his story ten years of it he was closing his bag when he remembered the little girl in the blue dress at the theatre he straightened and scowled after a moment he snapped the bag shut damn it all if clark had chosen to tie up with the girl that was on clark's conscience not his but he was vaguely uncomfortable it's a queer world joe he observed to the waiter who had come in for the breakfast dishes yes sir it is that said joe End of chapter 11